Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is one Fred Watson and there is only one. Hello Fred. Uh, I know there are others but you're the only one of your kind. Well, that's probably true. I'm sure I've told you before that I once got an email from somebody called Fred Watson and I completely ignored it because I just thought I'd accidentally sent it to myself. It turned <laughs> that's out it was just trying, a great story. He was trying to email everybody in the, um, yeah, you know, everybody with the name Fred Watson. So I don't know whether he succeeded, but that's all right. Way too much spare time, really. Uh, it does sound that, uh, mm. that Well, right. actually, when I Google myself, which I don't do, I have actually, but uh, I think everyone does. But when I uh, once Googled myself, uh, it brought up the um, Australian rules footballer named Andrew Dunkley from Tasmania because he played for the Sydney Swans. So as much as I try, I still can't be the most famous Andrew Dunkley. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just not possible. Now, today, Fred, we're going to be talking about the Michigan incident, which happened last week, um, stirred a few people up too, uh, not the least of which was a, uh, an issue with the uh, United States Geological Survey tweeting the incident and freaking people out, not as bad as Hawaii. Uh, we also have a question from uh, young Clayton in Texas, which I, uh, it's a good question, um, fact or fantasy, we will find out regarding black holes, Clayton, and uh, Hubble in the news again in regard to a distant galaxy that's been discovered and it's uh, taken a few happy snaps but first the michigan incident now um let me fill you in uh, fred uh, apparently on tuesday night michigan time around 8 10 last week uh, the sky was almost literally ablaze with a fireball uh, which was caught by dash cams and all sorts of uh, of other cameras all over the place created an incredible light show and uh, it was um, it turned night into day ever so briefly, and I suppose uh, you know we've we've seen these things before. They're not absolutely uncommon, but uh, they're quite spectacular. Uh, they indeed they are. Um, you, you're right though to highlight that they're not totally uncommon. They are, um, you know, they're certainly striking when you see one, uh, and I guess we would probably see more of them if we weren't all in the evening sitting huddled around our TVs and our game consoles and our phones and our pads. Famous story. I missed a tornado once because I was glued to a television set. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) If I'd looked out the window, it would have been there, but... Yeah, but you didn't bother looking. I missed it. Oh, dear. Well, yes, I think that's probably... I think that happens a lot with fireballs. the so what's a fireball it is a piece of space debris and it's natural debris not space junk that we you know we create ourselves a piece of natural space debris that hits the earth's atmosphere at um pretty high speed this one in the region of 15 or thereabouts kilometers per second uh the the uh speed that it hits the atmosphere at 
basically vaporizes it very quickly. And um, if you've got an object that's big enough, maybe the size of a football, um, that will be, uh, you know, it will be long lasting enough uh, that uh, it, it, it brightens up very, very strongly. And so you do get this curious phenomenon where uh, just very briefly, perhaps for less than a second, um, the, the landscape is lit up as bright as day. I've seen several times from Siding Spring Observatory, uh, and it is always worth seeing. It's quite striking. Suddenly the landscape is is in daylight, and you think, what? And then, you know, it depends where you're looking in the sky, but you might just catch a, a trace of this. And sometimes there's a bit of an after an afterglow as well with the ionized path through the atmosphere that's still, still glowing. Um, the uh, the the trick though when if you do see one of these things is to uh, kind of hang around for a few minutes because somewhere around five minutes later there's a chance that you'll hear the sonic boom uh, and I've done that myself uh, a few minutes later you get this double dull thud uh, which is uh, the sonic boom from the, uh, the 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 meteor hitting the atmosphere uh, why is it so much later because well it, that was well, I was going to ask. <laughs> I read your mind. Uh, it's um, it's because the, the the all the action takes place about ninety kilometres above the above the Earth's surface, and of course ninety kilometres is quite a long way. Yeah. And sound um, tra travels at sea level at um, about um, a third of a kilometre per second, but but up there it's uh, it's slower, and you you get a um, basically you you get this uh, this delay uh, before you before the sound hits the ground. Mm. Uh, that of course can be dangerous too because the famous Chelyabinsk uh, incident, which was in I think February 2013, um, this was a piece of debris much bigger than a football. This was something uh, the size of a house that hit the atmosphere at about 30 kilometres per second. It actually penetrated very deep into the atmosphere before it disintegrated. But some of the bits and pieces did land on the surface. They are called meteorites when they hit the surface. But the sonic boom from that was was very dangerous what happened uh, as you and i have spoken of before is that people saw the flash uh, in this case it was 30 times brighter than the sun yeah they saw the flash and uh the uh, all rushed to the windows to find out what it was because they weren't watching their tvs or whatever shockwave hit them the shockwave hit the glass and broke pretty well every window in Chelyabinsk and knocked down a few walls as well. So uh, something like 1,200 people, I think, were uh, wound up having to visit hospital. This one in Michigan was nothing like that. It was a smaller event. Uh, we've seen the dash cam footage. It was spectacular. It did the, the old trick of lighting up the, the landscape. Um, I haven't heard any reports of sonic booms, but I'm sure there would have been. It, it basically straddled the, the southern end of the Great Lakes region uh, in the USA, seen by um, something like uh, or, or uh, reported by something like 355 uh, individuals. So quite a, you know, a good a good sighting. And maybe it just came at the right time of day for people to be out and about and see it. Yes, indeed. Oh, well, a lot of traffic um, on the on the big highways over in America and uh, everyone's got dash cams these days so quite a bit of footage there but security cameras picked up uh, the the um, um, you know parking lots and things like that uh, lighting up and you could just see how it was dark and then it just sort of 
glowed and then bright white and then it yeah. tailed off. It's quite spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they reckon that the meteor was uh, about two metres in diameter. Oh. All right. And, it, and it was coming in at around about 45,000 kilometres or 28,000 miles an hour, which is yeah. pretty slick. Um, it is, but, that's right. Yeah, great so footage that's of it. Um, and and there, there is, uh, there's certainly thinking in this, in this case that this object might have produced debris that made it to the ground, which uh, become meteorites and, of course, are free samples of space material. They're yeah. very highly prized. Indeed. One downside, and that's why I referred to it as the Michigan incident, uh, the US Geological Survey in Detroit uh, sent out a tweet confirming the meteor occurred at 8.10pm causing a magnitude 2 earthquake. That kind of freaked people out because they don't cause earthquakes. It might have had the power of a magnitude 2 yeah. earthquake, but yeah. it didn't cause an earthquake. No, no, that's right. Phew. <laughs> um, and just one final footnote on, on, on fireballs generally. Uh, uh, so what's the difference between a meteor and a fireball? It's just a matter of degree. Um, a, a meteor is what we normally think of as a shooting star, something that whisks across the sky. Uh, if it's bright, bright enough, it becomes a fireball. Uh, and this definitely was in that uh, re uh, regime. Uh, it's also worth looking, though, if you ever do see one, uh, just see if you can see any colour in the in the brilliance of the light that's coming uh, coming out. Uh, dash cams and things like that are not very good at showing up these subtle colours, but the eyes are pretty good. And often there is a greenish colour uh, to the uh, to the fireball, and that's caused because the friction of the fireball is exciting oxygen atoms to give off their characteristic green light, which they do when they're excited. It's actually the same reason why the aurora borealis and the aurora australis are pro predominantly green. How about that? Mm. One well, final thought, I don't know we've spent a fair bit of time on this, but uh, how do um, you know, the Chelyabinsk incident and this one uh, differ from um, the Tunguska? event in the early uh, 1900s yeah um, pretty well only in terms of scale uh you know the um the, the tunguska object was probably about 40 or 50 meters across uh as i said the the chelyabinsk one was about the size of a house i think 20 meters or thereabouts uh so yes the, the there's there there is a spectrum of sizes in these things and the tiny ones are the most common the ones we see are shooting stars uh but the bigger ones do exist and maybe um you know within the next hundred years or so we might be due for another um things like thing like the tunguska event although it is now um it's getting to the size that about 50 meters that's getting to the size where which we can detect in advance with the flotilla of telescopes that we now have looking at the uh, at space exactly for this kind of thing for asteroids that well small small asteroids or big meteors that might hit the earth yeah uh, well hopefully if that ever happens again it doesn't happen over a major populated area but uh yeah i I'm still coming up with questions. How big is too big? I mean, how big does it have to be before it becomes a really significantly dangerous thing? Yeah, something. so something 50 to 100 metres is dangerous. If it hits a city, it, does it really would devastate the city area. Um, when you go up in size, of course, the devastation increases very rapidly. Uh, and the most, the most dangerous ones are ones like more than half a kilometre, then you're talking about 
hemispheric devastation. Mm. Uh, when you get up to a kilometre, you're talking about global effects. And a kilometre is not very big, Andrew. But um, no. we, you know, we believe that NASA has catalogued something like 90% of uh, near-Earth asteroids uh, a, a kilometre and above. Uh, that's based on statistical studies, of course. There's, there'll be a 10% that you don't know about, and they're the ones to worry about. Indeed. Well, um, we'll probably talk on this again the next time uh, a major fireball incident happens. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, they certainly got a good look at it in Michigan last week. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, occasionally, Fred, we uh, get a chance to have a, a talk about something that the Hubble Space Telescope has achieved, and it's certainly done something pretty uh, spectacular this time around with the discovery of uh, one of the oldest known galaxies so far. And, um, yeah, you can learn a lot, I suppose, from something so ancient as this. Uh, that's right. Uh, this... Uh, presents its own problems, of course, because uh, very uh, distant galaxies um, are very faint and usually appear just as a point of light uh, in Hubble's field of view. Uh, but this one has had the benefit of a kind of natural zoom lens, uh, something we call a gravitational lens. And uh, what happens here is that uh, an intervening object, something between ourselves and this very, very distant object, uh, and usually it's a cluster of galaxies, and galaxies are 
pretty big objects. Yeah. Um, a cluster of galaxies essentially distorts the space around it and turns it into a lens. Um, that gravitational distortion is what Einstein told us happened. We've had um, countless examples of it happening in practice. So it's, this is very much the, uh, the stock in trade of astronomers these days to look for gravitational lenses and look for their potential as natural zoom lenses or natural telephoto lenses to magnify more distant objects beyond the galaxy cluster. And that's what's happened in this case. Um, and this story actually, like several uh, at this time of year has come from the most recent meeting of the American Astronomical Society. They meet every January. Uh, they're meeting this year in Washington, D.C., or they have met. It's the 231st meeting. That's pretty pretty um, good going. But yeah. often at those meetings, you get really um, interesting um, scientific news stories, and this is one of them. So what's, what's happened? Well, the Hubble has been used to look at one of these distant objects that has been... Um, given a close-up view by virtue of the, uh, the of the gravitational lens, so this particular galaxy um, we are seeing as it was 13.3 billion years ago, which is almost the entire age of the universe. Um, so you know, as you as you look further and further out into space, you're looking further and further back in time because of the the speed of light, the finite speed of light. Um, in this case, the light time journey has been, as I said, 13.3 billion years. Um, so when the light left this object, uh, the universe was only 500 million years old. It was, you know, half a billion years after the Big Bang. And it's not that long ago that we would have thought, well, this is not long enough for galaxies to have formed. But we now have a different view of that because we see objects at this sort of distance and at this kind of look back time, uh, which clearly are galaxies and which um, uh, in, in, it certainly have some structure to them. They don't, they don't have the neat and tidy appearance of modern galaxies where we've got this kind of grand design spiral structure uh, like our own galaxy, which if we could see it from the outside would be absolutely stunning uh, because of its symmetry. We don't, we don't see that in the early ones. They, they have structure, but it's fairly higgledy-piggledy. Mm. However, the, the theory says that at this very early age, I mean, these are newer theories of how galaxies form, uh, theory does predict that you might start to see spiral structure in objects seen this long ago or this, this early in the history of the universe. And that's the, the, the nub of this story, that there seems to be uh, in this gravitationally lensed image of this distant galaxy that existed just 500 million years after the origin of the universe, there seems to be structure that really suggests uh, that, that it does have these spiral arms, uh, rather like ours, but not as neat and tidy. They're, um, you know, they're, they're much kind of looser wound and have um, a, a lot more what you might call roughness to them because there's obviously a lot of turbulence in these early galaxies. The gas and the dust and the stars are thrown together in a bit of a mishmash uh, without having time to settle down dynamically, which is basically what's happened to our own galaxy. And that's why it looks so good. So a great piece of work, this um, galaxy uh, in the depths of space, seen, as I said, 500 million years after the Big Bang. This is an obvious target for the next generation of big telescopes. Mm. Uh, and in particular, 
the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is uh, basically NASA's next big thing in space. It will replace the Hubble. Uh, it's due to launch next year, in fact. Uh, but but galaxies like this and this one in particular will be, you know, there'll be um, targets for for uh, not just the Hub the James Webb Space Telescope, but the new generation of extremely large ground based telescopes as well. So we await uh, news from space on these things with great interest. Yeah, you might be able to clear something up for me, though. Uh, what Hubble observed and what that galaxy is like now would be very different. Would that not be the case? That's right. Because we're, um, looking, we're looking at historical light. We are. However, um, the, the idea of a now... Uh, well, yes, that's, that's can, it, isn't it? It's a very loose thing in astronomy terms. That's right. And, and in fact, it doesn't really have any meaning when you're talking about one vantage point, because there is no getting around the fact that you are always looking back in time. So, um, But if you think of what it will be like if you're standing next to that galaxy now, 13.8 um, billion years after the Big Bang, 13.5, sorry, 13.3 billion years after the light left it that we've now detected. If you imagine yourself standing next to it, yes, it would be quite different. Mm. Uh, it may have done what we think uh, many galaxies do, which is to accrete or gobble up smaller galaxies. We know our galaxy has grown uh, by this method. Um, and uh, it suggests that perhaps this dim and distant object that we see as a smudge in a Hubble telescope image might now be a very imposing spiral galaxy, um, you know, with its own uh, retinue of smaller dwarf galaxies and maybe even planets with living organisms on them. Who do, uh, you know, who, who, who knows? Yeah, well, the more we learn and the more we can take advantage of improving technology, the more we're starting to see commonality uh, throughout the universe, um, uh, planets, galaxies, uh, and perhaps life is a part of that as well. We'd like to think so, and that's really what the science of astrobiology is all about. And, uh, well, you, you and I report on the latest stories in that whenever they come out. We do. We hope to. <laughs> well, you know, if someone beats us to it, we don't really care, but we'll still report. <laughs> uh, this is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here, and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Last but not least, Fred, uh, we have a question from our studio audience. <laughs> I can hear crickets. But we do have a question from uh, Clayton in Texas who's uh, emailed us to say, Hello, Andrew and Fred. Love the show. Big fan. Blah, blah, blah. That's what he wrote. Sounds like me. Uh, my question concerns black holes. I was recently made aware by a friend that black holes are actually still theoretical. Is this true? If so, why are black holes so often presented as scientific fact? How do scientists know black holes exist if one cannot see them? Because not even light can escape from a black hole. Uh, best of luck to you both. Thanks for a great podcast. Clayton Baker, Texas, USA. Do they exist, Fred? <laughs> um, they do. Uh, but uh, look, Clayton's is a great question because it really goes to the heart of what astronomy is all about and what we do. Um, we uh, have to, because we can't go and grab hold of the things that we 
are investigating the world of astronomy, generally speaking, what we have to do is see what, observe what we can, and then build models uh, that rule out any other possibilities, and then say, well, the, the reason why this is like that is because this, this, and this are happening. Mm. For example, the, you know, the story we've just been talking about. We we know that this smudge in space is not not actually a smudge in space. It's a galaxy because we understand the processes by which the light from it has been magnified and kind of slightly distorted. So with black holes, um, it is quite right that in a sense they are theoretical entities because nobody has yet imaged a black hole. Now, that might sound like a daft thing to say because, of course, a black hole is by definition black uh, because its gravitational pull is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. Um, but we do have ways of imaging black holes, and that, that is likely to happen, actually, in the next two or three years, uh, because radio astronomers are uh, basically putting together an array of radio telescopes that will be able to detect the radio emission coming not from a black hole, but from the region immediately around it, uh, where um, you know objects are being sucked in and they're being energized to very high levels and that makes them emit things like x-rays but also radio waves and it, it may well be that um, soon we have an image of this swirling disk of material around a black hole that clearly shows the missing bit in the middle uh, which is what we call the event horizon that's where the, the dark blob is that represents the black hole so that's something that you know maybe will uh, we'll be able to say then, well, they're clearly no longer theoretical entities. They do exist. But we can already say that, Andrew, because of observations that have already been made. And perhaps the most convincing uh, observations yet of the existence of a black hole, and this is a supermassive black hole, its, it's uh, dimensions are that it weighs uh, something like 3.6 a million times the mass of the sun, so it's a big black hole. Yeah. This one sits at the center of our galaxy. And over the last 20 years or so, astronomers have observed, um, they have observed stars which are actually around the black hole. And what you see is these stars all in orbit around nothing. Yeah. Uh, they're actually orbiting something that is clearly very massive, but there's nothing to see. At least there isn't invisible light or infrared radiation, which is what they, they use. You can see it in the radio region of the spectrum, and in fact, it's that's how we discovered it. This thing is a radio source. It's called Sagittarius A star. That's its name. Um, and that's how it was first discovered, that there's this object at the center of our galaxy, very precise and pinpointed uh, target in radio waves. But that's not the black hole itself. That that uh, the radio radiation is coming from this swirling disk of material around it. But so in short, really, what you're saying is we can see the effects yes, that's, of black that's holes. Exactly. We can see the, the evidence of what they are doing in their surrounding yeah. areas, but we yeah. can't actually see them. Yeah, that's the, the, in this case, that's correct. We, I think we will eventually, and might not be too far down the track, I think we will eventually see black holes. And in fact, that one at the centre of the galaxy is the one that everybody's got their eye on mm. to look at the, the, the accretion disk around it, the swirling disk of material. Uh, but, but the point I was going to make about these stars in orbit around Sagittarius A star, which is dark in the visible and infrared region of the spectrum, they are orbiting around something 
that can only be a black hole. That's the trick, because you know they're orbiting around uh, an area of space that is particularly compact, but you also know that it has a mass of 3.6 million times the mass of the sun. So it can't be anything else. That's the bottom line. It rules out neutron stars. It rules out uh, star clusters or anything of that sort. It's got to be a black hole. It's the only entity that can, uh, you know, can demonstrate that kind of gravitational pull. So in that regard, um, you know, Clayton's question takes on a slightly different complexion because it, it is a theoretical entity but it is um, the only theoretical entity that could fit the bill and so in that case really we we are observing it um, um, you know in a, in a in a in as solid a way as you possibly can yeah and uh, we're learning more and more about black holes you and I talked last year about the fact that they were confused as to why there were only two sizes supermassive or small Yes. <laughs> and why aren't there any medium ones? And then within about a week, I think they found a medium one. So yeah, we're starting yeah. to really fill in these gaps, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's quite right. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, as I said, Clayton's question is is a good one because it, it goes to the, the heart of our science. You know, you could say the same thing about the Big Bang. We we are absolutely convinced that the Big Bang existed. We see its afterglow in the sky. We see its effect in that the, the galaxies are all racing away from one another. But as yet, we cannot see the Big Bang itself, mm. uh, looking back 13.8 billion years. It's possible that in the future, using gravitational waves, we will be able to detect the gravitational crunch of the Big Bang, uh, and that will be a great breakthrough. But at the moment, it remains a theoretical entity, just like the black holes are, but with overwhelming evidence uh, to, to suggest that they are real. Indeed. All right. Thank you, Clayton. Great question. And uh, we certainly do encourage people to send us their questions and we'll do our best to try and put them in a drawer and forget about them. Uh, but if we do have to answer them, we will. I, I just uh, actually found out there's a, another supermassive black hole much closer to us, Fred. It's called the Australian Taxation Office. So I'm no. going to get investigated now, aren't I? <laughs> Well, you probably will, and, <laughs> uh, and serves you right. <laughs> Roadway lines like that uh, oh, left alone. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a law in Australia that you don't make jokes about the Australian Taxation Office. Oh, oh, dear. Fred, as always, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope, um, uh, you know, that next week when we try and speak, you're not locked up somewhere because of making jokes about the ATO. Uh, but it's been a pleasure talking to you as well, Andrew, and we'll chat again soon. Look forward to it. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, and we look forward to catching up to you again very, very soon. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio boom and stitcher or your favorite podcast distributor this has been another quality podcast production from sites.com and the analysis that has been done with the hubble telescope demonstrates that we are looking back uh 13.5 billion years i beg your pardon let me get the right number 13.8 so <laughs> fred I'm going to stop you. How are you doing there? <laughs> I'm, I'm disturbed because oh boy. I, I can I see. I was trying you are, not to cough, but you are in distress. Yeah, it caught up you. to me. <clears throat> I just got to get some water. Get some water, and we'll edit this. I'll keep the recorder going. I can edit it later. Yeah. Oh, right here. <laughs>
poor old Andrew's snuck out of the room. He's disappeared into the uh, ante room, looking for water to to, to quench his uh, insatiable instinct. It started as a tickle and ended God. up as a I don't know what. But anyway, that's all. Right. That. I've given the editor a running commentary on your. Oh, um, have you? Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Uh, wonders stop. of water. I feel better now. Yeah. So I was distracted by your clear, your obvious distress and, and actually got the wrong number there. So I'm going to repeat what I said. Okay. Are we okay just to pick it up? Yep. Go for it. Space Nuts.